Hi, I'm Richard Bond, and I am the producer and director of the Tupac Assassination movies. Over the last 12 years, I have learned a lot about Tupac, and I'd like to share with you what I know. Hey everybody, this is RJ Bond, and what I know is the podcast. This is where we get together and we talk about the nutty world of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls, and we talk about their lives, their hits, their successes, their failures, ultimately their deaths, and about everything else that kind of hangs off of that. It's always changing, it's always news, and it's always interesting. And of course, the reason we started this show was to just kind of brain dump on the fan base and tell them what we know and uh, talk about it a little bit. Now, so we have something new to the podcast. This is a new season, and you know, with new seasons come new features and new things. So uh, I want to welcome to the show my partner in the podcast now, J.M. Kazi, who actually is uh, very, very versed, and you see him around on the Tupac websites, and you see him in the forums, and you see him on the YouTube, and he does have his own YouTube channel, and I'll let you talk about that in just a quick sec, but uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Kazi. Thank you, RJ. I appreciate you inviting me to your show i'm sure we have lots to talk about as we've already been in the works absolutely you know we kind of came across some stuff regarding uh club 662 and uh for all of you who don't know club 662 is kind of trenched in the entire death row story the tupac shakur murder story uh as the nightclub in las vegas that was supposed to be bought, according to legend anyway, by Suge Knight and Death Row Records and was going to be a nightclub that they frequented and had concerts at. And they'd been doing this for a couple of years where they had been providing the entertainment, but the the lore, if you will, was that this uh, place was going to be a um, nightclub that was going to be bought by Death Row Records and Suge Knight. And um, <clears throat> it does have merit because... It was the reason, or at least part of the reason, that the guards, the night that Tupac Shakur was killed, were told not to carry their weapons. And, you know, we've heard different things, you know, Jim, we've heard different stories about that. Yes, absolutely. In reviewing everything, there's some new players that were brought to the surface. Yeah. The reason we started looking at Club 662, uh, for all you out there following along, was because there's been a big misconception about the fact that, you know, Suge Knight was going to somehow be involved with Club 662. And I think the traditional lore, check my math on this, uh, Kazi, but isn't wasn't the traditional lore that he was going to actually buy Club 662 and he wanted a stake in the club and all that? Wasn't that, isn't that what the kind of popular myth is? That is a popular myth, but you have to look at what his real intention was. I mean, if you look at basically his... His criminal record would, would Las Vegas allow him to actually be part owner of that club? Well, I never really understood exactly what it was that they were going to gain by putting a nightclub out there because you better know the minute that they do that, I mean, fucking Vegas cops are going to be like all over it constantly. And what we found out about the club is, is actually pretty interesting. We found out that uh, the club was actually a Mexican Mexican restaurant for a long time. And then it got converted into a strip club before it became Botany's, I think was the name of it at the time. And then it kind of became a regular nightclub. Uh, and then Club 662 kind of took off when Death Row Records started providing entertainment. But 
I think there's a little bit more to the story uh, on it. And, and that was why, because, you know, we were trying to figure out they had a, a an event there that Tupac was supposed to perform at. And, you know, of course, the thing about it is that I'm not even sure that Tupac really had an obligation to perform at that nightclub. I know they were advertising it, but, you know, Kazi, I'm thinking about it and thinking how he didn't he didn't want to go to Vegas. And if so, if he had a commitment like he really was supposed to. Well, there's a lot of suspicious incidences that happened that night. I mean, first off, he was supposed to be there. I mean, we know that he was supposed to be performing there. But I mean, of course, you heard the. The story that he was supposed to have gone to Atlanta because his cousin sold his AK-47 or had stolen something from him and he wanted to go there, but he kept being asked to go to Las Vegas that night. So I think he did. He was he was apprehensive about being there to begin with, but just the uh, the whole story on the surface of there being this uh, liquor license and not being able to carry guns because of a liquor license, to me, is 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 not a transparent story coming from certain individuals so i mean we as, as as you dig deeper and you start learning more and more things about this this story i think that um you're only scratching the surface well let's think about that for a minute because you okay so what what do we know okay we know for example when i interviewed gloria cox who was tupac's aunt she said that he had a problem in Atlanta that involves the gun. One of his cousins, Kenny, sold one of his guns, and he was unhappy about it. He wanted to go to Atlanta and kick Kenny's ass. but the, And that was the excuse that he used for wanting to stay home. But she said that he wanted to stay home because he liked being with Kadada, and he was kind of enjoying the home life and liking that aspect of things. I'm wondering, um, Pop went to New York right before for the MTV Music Right before uh, he went to Vegas. And there's a lot of talk and a lot of belief. You know, they said that Pac didn't want to go to Vegas. And we know that was pretty much the truth. I think that he made it pretty clear. But they said that he was going to go to Atlanta. Do you know anything about that? I mean, that's kind of like one of those things where it's a sentence. He, he said he wanted to go to Atlanta. Was he just going to come home? Did, did, did you know? No. Here it is. Okay. Hit me. Pop's cousin, my son, Kenny, had was on drugs, and he had taken one of Pop's rifles, one or two, I don't know, stolen them, to get him, take him to Detroit, and Pop heard about it, so Pop was pissed off, and he didn't want to go to Vegas. So he didn't want to go to Vegas, but this was a good reason for him not to go, because he was going to come down here and kick his cousin's ass, right? Beat him, you know how you, the boys do for taking his shit, you know? But he did. That was a big thing. There was a, my, my cousin, my son's wife kept the uh, tape of Pop calling Kenny up, cussing his ass out. Coming out and nigga, I'm gonna kick your ass. I'm gonna do all this here, you know. It wasn't a, a thing in the family, cause you know, like, oh no, that. No, it was. First of all, the other cousin was older, and they were cousins. They grew up together, so that's what you do. You know, that's what happened. You know, if you do that, you know, come down. But yeah, that is true. There was a whether or not to come to Atlanta to beat his cousins, but or to go to Vegas. Do you know why I changed his mind? Do you know I don't know why he changed his mind. My sense is 
that there was pressure on him to go to Vegas. The thing in Atlanta was not as strong as it sounded. You know, the, the thing with the cousin was not as urgent in his spirit as it sounded. Otherwise, he would have came. It was about stealing his guns. And it was his cousin. So I don't think it was, I mean, looking back, because it didn't happen. It wasn't an urgency for him like that. He can get to that anytime. He could always come to Atlanta and kick his ass. I think there was pressure on him in terms of his work and that thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the, his, his sense of obligation. But he really didn't want to go. They begged him to go. And when he left, my, he, my daughter, who was out there, uh, she went with him and left her daughter, my granddaughter, who was at the time three or four. And she left her daughter crying. Tupac bribed the little four-year-old to stop crying. You're too grown. You always want to go with everybody. When I come back, I'll buy you a uh, big burger, whatever the burger is out there. I'll bring you a big burger back. And gave us some money. And my daughter went because Kadada went to be with Kadada. And, yeah, he did not want to go to, because he was with Kadada. He had a thing going on. He had a, a, a fantasy that he wanted. He wanted to get married. He wanted to have kids. He had my daughter out there to, to be the opposite of Kadada. He wanted my daughter to see the different chick, and he wanted Kadada to see the different chick. And they, they blend up, and they did. You know, Kadada took how to get the right weave and the right wig or whatever. And Jamala, because she's from New York and a little, you know, ghetto-ish to that mm -hmm. degree from the Bronx. And you got that whole, that swagger with it. You know, so he had something going on. And he was dreaming about the getting married and being engaged and being a family man and all of that. So I think it was just a pull, and one pull was stronger than the other. The, the pull for Vegas was for me, to, I think, wasn't so much Vegas as the his girl and, you know, that thing that they were doing together and that dream that he was into as opposed to the thing in, in, in Atlanta was a family thing. It's, it's a gun, you know, the guns and the son, his cousin is on drugs again and whatever. But I don't think that, you know, I think that's really what it was because he would have came. Because he was angry. But being angry with Tupac wasn't like, so he's angry. He's angry one minute, but that thing don't carry the next day. Right. You know, he's, he's, when he's angry, he gets it out. Mm -hmm. He does not hold his feelings in. But he means it, though. Oh, he means it when he's angry. He means it at, yes, he does. But once he get it out, and once, because he's now dealt with it, once he feel, felt like he has dealt with it, Either he can get back to it, it, depending on how important it was, or he's done with it. I'm sure they would have tussled and, t you know, whatever they would have done, it would have been fine. Because they cousins, it's cousins. They grew up close. But that's what I think when I thought about it later, is that he had that pull with, with Kadada more than Vegas. Mm -hmm. With wanting to be married. Wanting to have a fiance and wanting to do a family and that kind of so thing. So he just used Atlanta as kind of a cover. Kind of. If that would have worked, he would have. That would have been okay because he could have just came here and came back. Came here, 
found candidate, da 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 da. What'd you do that for? You did my mama house, you took my that kind of shit is that that you know, that was deep, but not that deep. I don't think if with that deep he would have done it. You know, and the depth, the deepness wasn't so much going to Vegas and that Suge was pushing him because he did. But I, because Kadada went, it was be, because he wanted to be in that, you know, in that situation and go get it over with and come on back. Go get it over with and come on back. That was the intent that I believe because his cousin was there, his female cousin, his his only big female cousin who he grew up with was there and he didn't want her in no harm's way. The outlaws was there. He didn't want them in no harm's way. That's hence where they was at. Why they couldn't go to the what the, the fight uh they in the hotel room because they couldn't go. Jamala couldn't go. Kadada couldn't go. They had to stay in the room. Girls couldn't go, couldn't hang out with them. We couldn't we even the grown women couldn't go to certain things. You know, he didn't want us there out of harm's way, mm -hmm. whatever he perceived harm's way to be. That's that sense of responsibility. That same yeah. sense of responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Now, after, you know what? And so the idea of going back to Vegas yet again, because they were going all the time, like every weekend they were going to Vegas, that gets old. <clears throat> and if you want to stay home, you stay home. And, uh, you know, um, I that was what, you know, that was what Glow said. And then, you know, same thing with... Um, Alina Sunday said it when she said, you know, he said he was going to go, go, and then he said he wasn't going to go, and then he said he was going to go. He had changed his mind. Um, you know, I, I think the overwhelming opinion was that he didn't really want to go. So it just is interesting to me as to why, I mean, it's awful presumptuous if you don't even have a commitment from the artist if he's going to perform or not, that you'd be advertising it. Because I think Reggie and some other people said that they had been advertising Tupac performing at Club 662 that night. And it's like, well, I guess everybody knew but Tupac, right? So, you know, I, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's kind of, du that's kind of dubious all by itself. But then the reason that they said that they couldn't carry guns had to do with a guy, <clears throat> he was a Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Officer who had a gym called Barry's Boxing. And according to what we understand, they were told not to carry guns because there was going to be a charity event at Club 662 for this Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Officer that would raise money for his, I, I want to say it was an inner city boxing gym, but again, like I, I you and I talked about, what kind of fucking inner city does Vegas have? I mean, that's the last place in the world that I've heard about inner city problems. I mean, down, they definitely have downtown Las Vegas, but that's like Fremont Street. It's all lit up and, you know, they got casinos all over the place. And I'm sure there's probably a, a few bad areas in Las Vegas. But in terms of like an inner city boxing gym, I mean, yeah, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, you know, Detroit. I could see like an inner city boxing thing, but maybe, I mean, maybe it wasn't inner city in the sense of, I mean, literally inner city, but maybe he was talking about for, you know, kind of urban youth for kids that couldn't afford to take boxing lessons or something. I, you know, th th that whole thing seems weird to me just because it's like, well, yeah, when I think of raising money at a charity for a, a cop and his charity, the, 
Yeah, the first people I want to go to are the gangster drug dealer guys that are, you know, at Death Row Records. That that that's the people I think are going to be the most charity conscious in terms of raising money for this boxing thing. And and it just that that never sat well with me because it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you got this this and then wouldn't there be like a thousand Metro cops if this guy's a Metro cop and he's raising money for his charity? Wouldn't there be like a thousand cops at Club 662? Because that's how cops work, don't they? I mean, they all get together when they're doing stuff. I mean, they're pretty close-knit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were, there would be other police officers there. But let's let's put this in the context here. So you have the, the story. There's The other part of the story is that, that a judge had had Tupac assigned to doing charity for that event based on his probation terms, or is that not accurate well that doesn't even make any sense and, and i'll tell you why that doesn't make any sense because it defies all law and logic first off <clears throat> no one has bothered to explain what criminal charge that tupac had that he had to perform community service on to get out of so we have to figure out that mystery first okay what criminal charge was tupac convicted of that instead of being sentenced to jail, he was sentenced to community service. Because if he was really sentenced to community service, that means he was convicted of a crime and that would have violated his probation right on the spot. Okay? So it's not like a judge is going to say, well, I'll tell you what, instead of finding you guilty, how about you do some community service and then I'll find you innocent? That's not the way it works. Community service is like an alternative to jail time. You either do jail time or you do community service. And some people have to do both. They do go to jail and then they get out and they do got to do community service. So it's it's that's the first thing that, that makes no sense whatsoever about this. The second thing about that is that California does not have jurisdiction in Nevada. And Nevada does not have jurisdiction in California. Nothing that Tupac did in Nevada is going to satisfy a California community service requirement, okay? When you got to do community service, it's not just whatever the fuck you feel like doing when you do it. When you have community service, it you, you have to go and you have to sign up for it, and it has to be a licensed contractor with the court that you sign up for and you got to do the hours like picking up trash on the side of the freeway or you got to go to a club and and you know i mean don't mean a nightclub like a club like a boys and girls club and you got to help out there washing towels or whatever it is you do for that community service and you log those hours in and there's a supervisor there i got kind of like a warden you know you see these guys walking around on the side of the freeway when they got 18 guys picking up trash and they watch out for you and they sign your timesheet how many hours you put in. But those guys are the ones you have to make the arrangement with. You got to show up at a certain time and be there. I have never heard in my entire life, I've never heard of any community service being done, first off, by, by doing a charity event that that satisfies your community service. Never heard that. Never heard that in my entire life. Okay. Could it be possible? Yeah, maybe, but it could be possible I could shoot a rocket, to, strap a rocket to my ass and shoot myself to the moon, okay? Not likely, but possible, okay? Well, I would say if, if, if there was anything or anybody that could have that kind of influence on getting something like that done for Tupac, those kind of special privileges, there's there's one person that comes to mind, and let me see if, 
you would know that one person, and I'm sure you know that one person that would have that ability to do that. What would you say? What, like a David Kenner or a Chesnoff or somebody? Uh, I was I was leaning towards David Kenner. If, if there was anybody that could, that could, you know, manipulate the system to his benefit, but obviously whatever his intentions were, I would say that it would, it would be David Kenner. Yeah, but the problem is, is that no matter how influential David Kenner is, first off, Tupac would have to be charged and convicted with somebody. All community service does is waive your jail time. Okay, it's part of the way you pay your debt to society, which means that Tupac would have already had to have been convicted of something. And I don't believe that he had been convicted of anything at that point. He had a lot of cases and all, but I think we'd have heard about it if there was something worth convicting him on. And, you know, and of course, Reggie's free to clear this up if he so chooses. But, you know, what was the charge and what court, because, you know, we can go pull the court records. What court was it and that he got this conviction? What was it for? And then how would a judge in California, even if David Kenner was like the most powerful dude in the world, how would a judge in California order somebody to do something in Las Vegas? Okay. I mean, you know, even if he said there's a charity event at the Hollywood Bowl well, that might be within the court's jurisdiction to say, you know, okay, you do this and show us proof that you did it, and then that. But see, the problem with that is, again, it's accountability, because anybody could say, oh, I went and did that, and they could even get a Suge Knight or somebody else to sign a waiver and say, oh, he completed it, he did it. Because that judge ain't going to go to Club 662, okay? That judge isn't going to be, mad, Mom, maybe he would, maybe he'd like to get down like that, I don't know. But... You know, I don't see him as, I don't see the judge as trusting these guys enough to say, okay, if you did something in Las Vegas, that's good enough for me because it's not even in the state of California. So, I mean, it just kind of stretches credibility. I think you're right. I, if, if there's anybody that could do something like that, maybe David Kenner could. But man, that really stretches credibility. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just really, it, for all these different reasons. So you got Tupac. Maybe he's going to the club to do an event. Maybe for uh, public service or, you know, doing, doing uh, you know, diversion or whatever it is that he's doing. Community service. But then he doesn't want to go. So would, would he, I mean, would all these people be saying that Tupac really didn't want to go? that was what what was compelling him to go was he, i mean he did certainly didn't tell that to lena sunday he didn't when lena sunday and and what i'll do after i'm done with you and i are talking i'm going to cut in the clip of lena sunday about the conversation that she had with tupac on the telephone the night before he left i got a call the night before Pac went to vegas telling me that everything was going to be all right that he and Suge Knight were gonna work everything out. Suge was gonna give him what's owed to him and invi had invited him to come down to Vegas and kind of clean, clear things up between them that Suge had accepted that he was leaving. And I remember saying, Pac, you made them a lot of money off that last album. I mean, your first album, I should say, you made him a lot of money. 
I don't see somebody just taking it that easy that you're leaving and that you're leaving letting it be let it that you're leaving letting it be known that he didn't pay you that's not a good rap to have in the business because other rappers will hesitate to go so if you leave him you know that's not a good thing for his company or him and he said oh no no Shug said you know I come to Vegas we'll squash everything everything will be clear and I told him I, I had a bad feeling again the same feeling I had when he went to death row and I, I remember saying just let the lawyers handle it just let the lawyers handle it don't go he said he really wanted to see the fight. It was um, Mike Tyson, I think, fighting. And I was like, watch it on TV like the rest of us. And he said, there's nothing like being, you know, there in Vegas. And I just said, take care of yourself. I just don't have a good feeling. But if that could happen, great. You know, that's a good thing but be, just be really careful, because just, something just doesn't seem right, something doesn't feel right. And that was the last time I talked to him. And nowhere did he ever mention to her that he had to go because it was a public service thing or a community service thing, and he had to go because of that. He told her it was because he needed to work some stuff out with Suge and that Suge was cool with everything after New York and and everything was fine. Do you think that you, do, do you think do you think with confirmation that without confirmation that we can just dispel the rumor that there was even any community service? Another reason I tell you that and you're making a great point because if if he was assigned to do community service, it would have been mandated right by the judge. Right. And he, he would have had to be there and there would have been no choice for him to say, Well, I don't want to go. I don't want to go there if it was mandated. So in in reality, to me, it, it, the perception is is that that the whole story of maybe the community service was was bogus. Yeah, I call bullshit on that. What do you, what do you think? I call bullshit. Yeah, I, I would say unless 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 you get confirmation from somebody who can dispel the rumor or actually prove the rumor. Then I would say we, we, we would dispel it all together as far as the um, community service is concerned. Okay, so so we got an official bullshit on the community service. Okay, so let's move on then to the Barry's boxing. You know this this this, you know the la the next thing was that they couldn't carry the guns because apparently there was supposed to be a charity event for uh, a Metro cop, um, and he owned a he owned a. Uh, a gym called Barry's Boxing. And, I, and I, I know that he owned the gym. I know who the guy is. We had a picture of him in Tupac Assassination. I forget his name now. But he owned a gym, and they were supposed to be having a charity event for this Barry's Boxing. But to hear and see everything that was like the ads for Death Row and the ads for Club 662 and all that, and the ads of Tupac were going to be there, I don't remember seeing anything about a charity event. Okay? And again, like we said, if it was a cop's charity event, I wouldn't need to be worried about carrying any guns at all because whenever a cop throws an event for a charity, there's going to be other cops there. Probably a lot of off-duty cops, you know what I'm saying? Carrying their yeah, weapons. Absolutely. I mean, for you not to believe that there was any of his cop buddies there or 
anybody that was in law enforcement didn't know about this event, you you would actually be ignoring a lot of truths because most of the time, as you mentioned, police officers do hang out with each other. It's not like you're a police officer; you're not going to invite any of your friends. So, right, I would I would say there would have been some some police officers there, but you know that's the first time hearing about this about about Barry's gym and there being a charity event. So yeah. That's yeah, that that's that was why they were told not to carry any weapon because there was supposed to be this charity event. But here's the other truth that you know you talk about truths, and I think it's a good point, dude, because you talk about other truths and you and like I start to think about one essential truth, other than a David Mack or a Rafael Perez, okay, and and a, and a Kevin Gaines, that that kind of ilk, okay. When you think about your Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Departments, they were kind of rednecks. I mean, back in those days, especially. They were kind of redneck dudes out there. Half of them were cowboys, and there wasn't a lot of... Uh, if, if you believe what they said about the fact that Vegas police didn't want to solve the case because it was a, a black rapper, and they didn't want that kind of stuff, and they didn't want that... Well, if you look at the cops there, what's the likelihood that a bunch of Vegas police would want to be hanging out in the same nightclub as a bunch of gangbangers and uh, uh, rapper guys from L.A.? I mean, Really? You know, when you think of like a charity event, what's the likelihood that a bunch of Vegas cops are going to get all excited about hanging out with Suge Knight? Probably, probably, probably zero to none. Yeah, because they hate the fucking dude. I mean, you know, they, they don't like him. I mean, you know, they, they, he basically, and, and Tupac, I think to a large degree, represented everything that these guys didn't like. Now, that's not saying that these guys themselves didn't have their own problems. Let's just put it that way, you know. And there's a lot of good, hardworking honest cops that are out there and most of the cops that i know they you know they they could live the rest of their lives not a single day dealing with any kind of gangbanger or a rap guy ever you know they don't want to have nothing to do with it so you've got now you got this whole thing about the charity event you got vegas cops there now i heard that there were some vegas cops that were on death row payroll but i've never been able to confirm that okay that there were off-duty Vegas cops that were there. So I would be like, why would you worry about the security guards not carrying any guns because there's going to be 100 cops there anyway? You know? But then again, maybe that's the reason why they, they didn't want them carrying any guns because if you didn't have a permit to carry a weapon and there's 100 cops inside that building, they're going to find you out, right? And they're actually going to actively go looking to see. And that's the other thing too is like, who, who was gonna actively go and search you for a gun you know was there gonna be some kind of commission that was gonna you know bombard the establishment say everybody pull your shirts up and let me see if you have a gun underneath your waistband well i'm sure they patted them down i mean i you know that's pretty much any nightclub in la they do that anyway they pat you down to make sure you're not carrying but you know think about that yeah who's gonna pat down 100 cops you know these cops well, show up you're gonna pat down the cops who's the for real? So, yeah, and the other, but, but I guess my point is, is the person that's standing in front of the door patting down people, who who was that person that was doing that? If he's associated with death row, then obviously he could have some bias and just let his guys in. It's not like... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> guys got to... You listen to some of the interviews and the guys have, have talked about that they were locked and loaded at the club. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, so the so guy's got a bazooka under his shirt, but he works for death row, so he lets him get through with the bazooka, you know. Um, yeah, you're right. I, I I hadn't really thought about that. He could definitely, if the guy working the front door is death row. But then, yeah, that kind of, again, 
that also flies in the face that there would be a bunch of cops around and these guys are stupid enough to know that there's a charity match and that there's going to be undercover or off-duty Las Vegas cops there and they're dumb enough to say that they're going to carry, you know, unpermitted, unlicensed, probably unmarked serial numbers, uh, handguns in that place. Um, I mean, it just doesn't it seem to you like a lot of that stuff, though, about saying, oh, we're locked and loaded, you know, kind of the Keith Davis bullshit. Doesn't that seem like that was just a lot of convenient shit you know? that was kind of made up after the fact? Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 this, this whole case... <laughs> This whole case is all over the place. I mean, there's so many scattered details, and sometimes, you know, everything is the truth, and then the other times, everything is a lie. So yeah, I mean, we we just we just really can't really pinpoint who's who's lying, who's telling the truth at this point. Right, but we do know we do know that the because that's what Frank and Michael Moore both said was that because they were telling the guards they couldn't carry guns because of this charity boxing thing, so. I, you know, basically, I'm going to say that that that's what they were told, but I'm going to call bullshit on that, too, because I don't, I find it very difficult to believe that, you know, that uh, a legitimate metropolitan cop would be relying on the likes of Death Row to host a charity event. Now, I mean, Suge Knight did do charity stuff because, I mean, you know, he handed out turkeys at Thanksgiving and, you know, he was known to do charitable things from time to time. I'm not saying that that's not possible, but I think the element of it that that is a little harder for me to reach is the fact that you would be mixing up Las Vegas cops with death row people and using the money from the sales of death row's stuff to fund this charity that was put together by cops. I, I, I don't know. It just, it just, it seems like a real stretch to me. I, you know, I know that's what they were told, but I wonder how truthful that really was. Sure, there would have been some backlash when it, when it would come out. Somebody would have found out and told the story and spun a certain way. And then Las Vegas would have some, the PD would have some kind of association with Temple Records. So I don't, I don't know either. That, yeah. That's even a story as well. Just that's a good point. They could get from you know a discovery later on that they were actually hanging out with you know the kind of the same and the same principle is with LA, LAPD being involved with different records. Look at the backlash that occurred there. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, they 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 try to stay away from the specter of you know you know being compromised in any way, shape, or form, and and yet you know here here's all that here's all that going on, and and the club itself was pretty. I won't say nefarious, but I mean it. Been, I mean, we we haven't even talked about the guys who you know who own the club. I mean, these guys that own the club. Apparently, it wasn't Suge Knight that owned the club, and it wasn't Helen Thomas. Helen Thomas of Platinum Platinum Road Entertainment, I think it was. She didn't even own the club. Okay, she owned a lease. She leased it. Leased the uh, I think the property in the building, and she had the alcohol license. But the actual cl- club itself was owned by a guy by the what was his name? Pfeffer, I think was his name. Lyle Pfeffer. I'm not certain on on the name, but I think I think what we're going to be connecting here is at some point Michael Blutrich yeah. is going to be involved in this. Yeah. So talk about talk about Pfeffer, but was was Blutrich is probably somebody that hasn't been known in the whole scheme of things, and I think as we go further in depth you're going to figure out that 
Michael Boutrich was actually a big part of this story, so yeah. to speak. Well, to put it in perspective, Blutrich and uh, and uh, Pfeffer were both uh, pretty uh, dishonest individuals. Let's just put it that way. Uh, Blutrich was a uh, an attorney. Pfeffer was kind of an investor guy, and both of them, you know, were convicted and did some time for uh, um, a lot of money transitions that were bogus fraud uh, that. That, that you know they were part of and and Blutrich isn't he the one that turned into a snitch for the feds Blutrich is actually a snitch or was a snitch label a snitch if you want to call it today for the feds and he actually got the uh, Gambino family a lot of the head figures convicted and uh, you know of course they're sitting in prison and as, if you know this he is actually he actually has a one million dollar bounty on his head um from the Gambino family and maybe even the Genovese family because it's all organized crime and they're all interconnected. And one of the big, biggest elements that they operated in was getting nightclubs yeah. and then, of course, using them as fronts to money laundering. Yeah, money laundering, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, they, and, and so so all you out there that are listening to this, you know, one of the, the, the clubs that, that you probably heard it on the Howard Stern show and all that, there was a nightclub in New York called Scores. It was a strip club out there. And Bluetrich and Pfeffer actually were the guys that founded that. And then as they grew that nightclub with, with mob money, with the, you know, with the Gambino mob family and James Gotti, or John Gotti Jr., um, they actually went out to other cities and opened up strip clubs at those cities as well. And then they got into doing other nightclubs in Las Vegas. So it's really not a big stretch to, to believe that they uh, were, were owners of Club 662. Because again, Club 662 was a strip club before it was Club 662. So they might have stopped making it a strip club and made it into a legitimate nightclub. Uh, but again, the roots are there from the guys that were in, investing, in, uh, investing in strip clubs to begin with. So this Bluetrich guy and this Pfeffer guy, I mean, yeah, they're 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 scumbag dudes and they're out there tied up with the mob knee deep and tied up with money laundering and then somehow their name gets tied up with club 662 so you know uh, we know that helen thomas her husband carl thomas was a known uh mob familiar guy was tied up with the mob we know that uh, George Kalisis was a mob lawyer. Oscar Goodman, the mayor, of, uh, the mayor of Las Vegas, was a mob lawyer. Okay, I mean, you know, the roots run deep there. So none of this is surprising. But what it all amounts to is that it didn't. There's too many people at the trough for Suge Knight or Death Row Records to try to get a hand in the middle of all that. Um, the the most likely story that I've ever been told is that. Death Row Records was primarily a, they were going to provide the entertainment. So there was kind of like a business arrangement where there was going to be a management company called Mookie Management that paid for the alcohol licenses and paid for the managing the club and the employees there. And when the uh, State of Nevada Alcohol Control Board came in, and they were doing what they call a premise check that we got the documents of. And when we do the live stream, we're going to show these things, right, Kazi? That's what we're going to talk about, right? Absolutely, yeah. we're going to talk about it. And but 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 
really, in, in all essence, on the surface, would you would you agree that Mookie Management was pretty much kind of a kind of a front company because of the characters that they sent down to Las Vegas? Well, absolutely. You know, the the what we're and we're going to show the names and talk about that on the live show, which is coming up tomorrow night. We're going to do the live show uh, Thursday night. But when you look at the actual um, people that were involved with it, they they mentions flat out that these the Mookie Management team was a team from New York. Now, why would a team from New York need to come come out to Las Vegas and run a bar that allegedly Death Row Records was somehow going to be tied up in? Okay, one interesting fact of all that though is part of the Mookie Management team, one of the people that were on that management team and the you know the various scumbags and we'll talk about them tomorrow on the on the live stream but those those guys Kazi I mean they 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 got somehow got Tammy Hawkins involved in the middle of all this didn't they I mean that wasn't that she came up in the middle of that right oh yeah absolutely everybody in that in that document pretty much kind of didn't know who who was who the manager was who the assistant manager was one guy at one minute was the manager and then another minute he turned into the assistant manager. And then if you look in that article, actually, I'm sorry, the document, you see Tammy Hawkins name there, but I think you, you're going to be able to elaborate a little bit more on that as far as what your findings were. Well, right. In the fact that, that Tammy Hawkins put a corporation together in uh, July of 1996 called club six, six, two was California corporation. Uh, but I'm, but, you know, I think they even said in the documents that eventually at some point, Tammy Hawkins was going to manage the nightclub there. Um, you know, and again, which still kind of begs the question, who is this New York team and why are they there? And why are all these disreputable characters, unsavory characters kind of tied up with something? Because, you know, I, I think you can agree with me on this, that the, the whole legend of the death row thing was that Club 662 was actually supposed to be some sort of like a legitimate enterprise, you know, that they wanted to do something legitimate uh, with death row that wasn't tied up with the typical, you know, gang thing and all that, that it was going to be something that they were branching off into some sort of legitimacy, you know, like the mob always talks about going legit. Um, I mean, that, that was the feeling I got from it that, you know, after you hear the stories over the years, that that's how it was going to be. I mean, did you ever hear anything like that? You know, I never heard that it was ever going to be legitimized. You know, from just looking at it from the outside, I always thought that it was just going to be a, a, a club, a nightclub where, you know, of course you come hang out, do your thing, whatnot. They'll have some musical performances there. Obviously they have the musical talent to be able to put them in there and draw attraction to it. But it just seemed that once that night ended and, uh, you know, of course Tupac, of course that that everybody was a trailblazer and nothing was really investigated as far as who owned the company who didn't own the company where these guys from new york were, were from where the Mookie management came from was david kennedy the owner was the owner i mean there was just a lot of questions that i don't think that anybody's really dug up and i think that you've actually done some really good research on it well you know and and just to give reference you know tammy hawkins must have been pretty pissed that she went to all that effort to get club 662 and spend the time getting that all set up she must have been pretty pissed off at should night because according to reggie and according to greg kading she turned snitch and fl and ratted out both should night and poochie faust if you want to believe what greg kading has to say well you know i don't but at the same time, to believe Greg Kading's book, you'd hear that, that Tammy Hawkins, a.k.a. Teresa Swan, 
was the one that allegedly ratted out both Suge and Poochie and pinned both of them as being responsible for the murder of Biggie Smalls. So, you know, she must have been, I mean, what do you think, man? She must have been pretty pissed off. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, we only have confirmation from two sources that say that she's the, that she's the one that fingered Poochie as being the person that killed the notorious B.I.G., but there's not a single person that was there to witness of. But, you know, people have the right to remain silent. You know, they don't have to say anything, Okay. So the fact that she did, and then, of course, you know, it makes it even worse because later on she went after Suge Knight for child support. So I guess maybe he owed her child support, too, because she went after him for child support in the bankruptcy court. But what's weird is that she's living at a house or she was living at a house at one point. They're talking about Tammy Hawkins, who was living at a house that was owned by Suge Knight and was given over to her in the bankruptcy, and that bankruptcy trustee had a few kind things to say about that, too, by the way. But she lived in, like, a house... Like, maybe she still does. It's a Rancho Cucamonga area up that way that was a house that Sharitha and Suge owned together and maybe lived in, and now one of Suge's baby mamas is living in that house... I mean, it just sounds kind of weird anyway, but, you know, she went after him for child support. She even got a house out of him, and then she turned around and ratted him out. That that doesn't sound like, I mean, the hell hath no fury than a woman scorned, I guess. Well, I did a, I did a video on all of Suge Knight's previous homes, and there's some, some interesting facts in there about how a lot of these homes were given ownership to other people, and I believe... There is an instance in there where Tammy Hawkins is given that home that you speak about, and it was transferred to her, I think, for a thousand dollars. And but there was just a bunch of kind of strange transactions that were happening. You know, a thousand dollars here, two thousand dollars there. You know, and then the next person takes ownership of the house. So another another nefarious act that basically you could go into in depth. And I mean, it, I mean, it probably would take you forever to even get down to. The, the real motive behind all of those transactions. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, but you got to be pretty, I I guess, I mean, you got to be pretty pissed off at Suge Knight to be doing that. But didn't, I mean, I thought I heard Reggie say that he's the one who introduced Kading to Tammy Hawkins. Was that, did, have you heard that? I don't know if I, I can say that I've heard that, but what I can tell you is, in, in my personal opinion is, there, who who would be the one person that would know all these intimate details and would be able to lead Great Kading to Suge Knight's skeletons in the closet, so to speak? Well, right. I mean, that's you know, how did yeah? I mean, other than you know, reputation, how did how did Great Kading pin the name Pucci Faust of all the guys? I mean, because you had Buntry hair on, you had a lot of. Hit. Uh, guys that were loyal to Suge and were hitters. They were all hitters. They were all guys that could pull a gun and shoot. There's no question about that. So why Poochie Faust of all people? Okay. We, we, we gotta ask yourself too. Who 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 would who would be compelled to tell Greg Kading everything that happened? And and I, I only say this because if you, if you think about it, if you live by the street code, is what they call it. If you live by the street code then never in your mind would you ever talk to a police officer. So 
it would have to be somebody who didn't have that street code, so to speak, that would be able to lead somebody, which would be Greg Kane, to somebody. Because who in there, nobody, nobody knew who Tammy Hawkins was. Somebody had a point, Greg Kane, in her direction. So I guess my point is, is that... Yeah, I don't think Keith Davis mentioned Tammy Hawkins. I don't think he said anything about her or Poochie no. Faust. And that's no. the amazing thing about murder rap is it basically, you know, there's no connecting the dots. He just kind of mentions suddenly Tammy Hawkins shows up. Suddenly, you know, Keith Davis shows up. He talks a little bit about how they got Keith Davis. But and then, and then he talks about how they entrapped Tammy Hawkins. But they never bothers to mention who gave them names. Who right. snitched. Right. And then, of course, the common thing is always to blame the dead guy because if you blame the dead guy there corroborate that story there's well, no way to substantiate it yeah well you know Orlando Anderson didn't give the name up he didn't give up Tammy Hawkins right because he he was dead you know so we have to figure we have to figure these things out but I think that you know we've talked a little bit about Club 662 you know we're going to talk more on the live show about it but, you know, I think that those are the things that people need to understand that that don't just buy the legend, don't buy Death Row Chronicles or some show on BET or some show on Fox that's got some story trumped up by a bunch of dudes that were at Death Row one time about what really happened. Because, you know, we've, we're looking and this is what we're going to keep doing. We're going to keep on fact checking a lot of this stuff. And we're going to call bullshit on it. And I think what you guys are going to find, and that's the purpose of the podcast, as you know, and and uh, the purpose of the live streams and that, is to get the facts out there so that people can actually decide for themselves what's truth and what's not. And I think that when you start looking at people who just do nothing but make up shit as they go along, are those the people that you're really going to want to believe in terms of who, you know, what happened and why? You know, I right. think I think and that has everything to do right. with it. And the documents and the documents prove otherwise as far as, you know, when able to find the connection between New York and Club Six Six Two and the folklore of Should Night being the owner and things of that nature. If you just wanna just kind of put it in context, in my opinion, David Kenner had a connection with somebody in New York. New York wanted to figure out a way to establish 662 as the club they came down they sent their guys their goons to come down and do the management that's why when they got questioned about these things they didn't even they didn't even know what their real answers were going to be i mean like like right. you mentioned one guy was the manager at one minute and you look at the document and the next minute he's the assistant manager and then all magically all, yeah magically and all in all we find out that it was actually tammy hawkins that was going to be the person that was going to be the manager of the club. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, you did mention that she was trying to incorporate this. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah, in, Ju in July of uh, 1996, they, you know, uh, they incorporated Club 662 Incorporated. It's in the California Secretary of State logs, you know. And, of course, the, you know, they let it go. They let they abandoned it right after, uh, you know, after the, the, the shooting happened and Suge Knight went to prison. I guess that was the end of Club 662, which... Really, you know, I guess that says a lot. I mean, was it ever going to be, was it ever going to be anything other than what we talked about—the possibility of it being a shell company? 
if you're not going to move forward with the plans just because Suge Knight went to prison, does that mean you stop what your investments are and you stop, you know, if you think it's going to be a money-making opportunity, do you just stop doing that? You know, that that's the whole thing. I mean, because if, 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 if this was going to be a pot of gold and they were going to make all kinds of money off of it and it was going to be this big lucrative thing and death row artists, I mean, death row records continued after Suge Knight went to prison, right? We know that and we know who was running it too. But But at the same time, if that was going to be something that was going to be such a lucrative cash cow for them, it was going to make them money somehow and was something other than what we've talked about it being, well, then why in the world did they drop it after Suge Knight went to prison? I mean, that, that makes no sense at all. Everybody could have kept doing what they were doing. I mean, certainly in a lot of aspects, everybody still kept doing what they were doing after Suge Knight went to prison, except for they walked away from Club 662 right after the shooting right after the Tupac and the Biggie things. So there's a lot more to talk about here, but we're going to wait and hold some of it back for when we talk on the live stream tomorrow night. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we, I'm getting this podcast up here quick so that we can uh, uh, tie it down and, and get you guys to jump on the on the live streams tomorrow. So uh, Kazi's going to put some stuff out. I'm going to put some stuff out. I hope Jesse's maybe going to put some stuff out, you know, J-Mix to get you guys to jump on the podcast, on a podcast, on the live stream anyway. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, for now, I think, Kazi, you got anything else to add? Because I think maybe we should hold some of it back for the live stream. What do you think? I think, I think we hold some things back, but I think that, uh, you know, you pretty much get a, get a, a full scope of what we're talking about here. I mean, if you think about it, there's, there's a lot of elements that were actually brought to the surface and, I think I think you did a great job with just kind of pointing these things out, but I think, like you said, people just have to open up their their eyes, open up their mind, and I believe everything that the so-called people that were there tell you, because a lot of times they're not always being transparent. So no, great, great podcast. Well, I could have done it without you, dude. I could have done this without you, man. I mean, we we've gotten together and really done some research, and it's been a lot of fun. So. Guys, this is how it's going to be going forward, and and I will say that we'll get we'll get a little better audio for for uh, JM to come through because it sounds a little robotic on the on the on the speaker, but it's better than a phone line. Selected you, and I know your baby daddy, he neglected you. 
rest, I must confess that I've been crushing for a very long time and Now that I'm single, I'm about to make you mine and Now that we alone, we don't have to waste time Just let that dress slip down your waistline huh. Elevator, let's celebrate in the cool club Candlelit, massage oils and bathtubs Candlelit, massage oils and back rubs Tonight's the night, baby girl, we better act up Third degree, back at it again, ready to go. One of my favorites of his. Uh, I haven't talked to him for a few days, but uh, he's definitely in our hearts and minds. Friend of the family, friend of our friends, knows my kids, and a very, very talented artist. So, third degree, kingthird.com. Uh, check him out. He's on Spotify. He's on all over the place. Go buy a, go buy a single from him, will you? For heaven's sakes. Go do that. Got a lot of great music out there. And uh, speaking on behalf of J.M. Kazi, this is R.J. Bond. That's what I know. What I know, Martin Productions production, copyright 2019. We'll see you next week.